Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On today's show, we're going to be talking with one of podcasts' most influential individuals. Eric Newsom started NPR's podcasting efforts in 2005, where he worked for over a decade and helped produce hit shows such as TED Radio Hour and Invisibilia. He left NPR for Audible, where he led Amazon's efforts in the realm of short-form audio and podcasts until 2018. Eric Newsom is currently a consultant and podcast maker with his company, Magnificent Noise, and is the author of the new book, Make Noise, a creator's guide to podcasting and great audio storytelling. On Radio Survivor today, we talked to Eric Newsom about how he began his career in radio at a college station, his advice for community radio stations when it comes to podcasting, and where to begin if you plan to start your own new podcast project to give you the best chance to reach the audience you're seeking. My name is Eric Klein, co-host, co-producer of Radio Survivor. Here's my interview with Eric Newsom. Eric Newsom, you wrote a book called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Mm -hmm. Why did you write this book? Who is it for? Uh, I wrote the book because I felt, you know, there are 2,000 new podcasts a week right now. It's just a dizzying amount of new things coming out, which on one hand is overwhelming to people. How do I find a voice in that space? And then for other people, it's like we're just at the beginning of the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. the, there's 867,000 podcasts available right now, which is roughly the amount number of websites uh, from 1997. So, you know, the Internet has found lots of interesting things to do in the last 23 years. It didn't like say, whoa, that's too much stuff. We need to stop. And, and so I think that there's, we're just at the beginning of the beginning with podcasting. And right. as people rush into this space, one of the stats that I learned that convinced me that to write this book was that 40% of podcasts are abandoned within a year. Yeah. And to me, that seems the, like a low number. To me. Well, you know, who knows what the you know, the number could be different? It does it, uh, that data is a year old. Who knows? But it's um, some of those podcasts were never meant to go long term. We're supposed to just do a couple episodes and be done, or for, for a specific event or history of time. And so that's some percentage of those, which means the rest of them basically were people who tried something and it didn't work out yeah. the way they intended and they stopped. Perhaps they didn't find it as fun as they thought. Perhaps they had expectations about who they were going to reach or money they would make or um, impact they would have. And it just didn't match up and it became less important. And I operate under the theory that of those people who got frustrated and stuck, that some of them didn't need to be frustrated and stuck. Right. They could, um, uh, if they had started off with a better sense of intention, um, they probably would have, I don't want to say it would have solved their problems, but the, 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 the frustration would have been less. Um, and so I think there are many elements of modern life where a sense of intention benefits us. Yeah. Um, everything from, you know, starting off on a journey, to yoga practice, mindfulness across the board, eating well, all these things, 
intention is really the yeah. key. Group, group projects. Group things projects, where right, yeah. Three people want to do something together. Yeah, and so I just took those ideas of intention and um, borrowed a lot from things that were very influential to me uh, and kind of packaged them into, okay, what's the audio version of these things and kind of combine them with things that I have experienced or come to know or mistakes I've made or successes I've had and figured out, okay, this is not a formula for success, but it sure is a formula for avoiding a lot of the self-inflicted wounds yeah. that podcasters do it when they, you know, you can't be a podcaster without a sense of enthusiasm for it, right? You have to have passion for doing this and thinking this is the way you want to connect to the world or express yourself or give voice to others. And um, that passion can sometimes get ahead of some of the these intentions. Right. And so I, I think what the book is trying to do is just keep your intentions caught up with your passion. Yeah. And that book again is make noise, uh, a creator's guide to podcasting and great audio storytelling by Eric Newsom, my guest today on radio survivor. Um, you said podcast producer, I'll include radio producers in there. Yeah. Though, now that we're the, right. but we're the minority, mm-hmm. uh, community radio producers, uh, probably start by off by wanting to be podcasters now. Um, especially the youngsters, uh, one of the things I thought of when reading your book that uh, wasn't mentioned was a, a place for people to start where they're allowed to make more low-stakes work before they launch the big uh, show that they plan on uh, turning into their career. This is, I'm assuming this is how a lot of podcasters uh, begin the, the journey when they, when they get in front of microphones for the first time. They plan on... Uh, uh, one of the things I was thinking on the way over is when I was a kid, the the big thing was uh, writing the great American novel. Like everyone was hoping that someday they could write the great right. American novel. And I feel like we've now, as a culture, switched to the um, to making it with a podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we haven't called it the great American podcast yet, yeah. but it's it does seem to be the new American dream for creative people. There's some element of that, and I think that is probably based that – Podcasting has such a low barrier to entry that anyone with a computer or a smartphone or an iPad or such device can be podcasting in a matter of minutes if they want to, right? And I think that that um, creates a a lot of excitement because people figure there's a low barrier to entry to this. I don't – there's not a gatekeeper. I don't have to convince anyone to do it. I just – my ideas will no longer be pushed out by gatekeepers or people who are making decisions. I don't have to work my way up. I just do it. Right. Right. There's and no job interview to start podcasting. That's right. That's right. And and I think that that creates – that ease creates a false sense of what it takes to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to talk. It's not easy to produce a podcast. It's not easy. Well, no, it's easy to make a podcast. It's very – very, in fact, it's, it's super easy. But making something that someone else wants to listen to, yeah, it becomes a problem. And that's one of the things in your book I think that you drive home over and over, which resonated with me and uh, my experience talking both with Paul Reese Mandel of Radio Survivor and, and ev- everybody else who, who cares about radios, that you're, um, you spend a lot of energy in your book – Eric Nism, the Make Noise Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Uh, you spend a lot of energy in that book uh, convincing producers to think about their audience. Right. Which I think is also um, 
obviously really important for people that are making radio as well as podcasts. Like you got to keep your audience always. They're always here. Even if we're alone in a room together, the audience is going to be here soon. Right. And, and, and we keep them in, in our thoughts. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, when people talk about the concept of free expression, they tend to focus on one half of the free expression conversation, which is my right to say what I want. There's actually, if you look at all the foundational things about free expression in this country, the First Amendment, so on and so forth, it is not just about being able to say what you want. It's about being able to hear what you want and having freedom of access to information, not just as a voice, but as a set of ears. Yeah. Right. And I think that the great thing about podcasting is, as podcasting is growing and growing, it's starting to look more and more like America. More and more people are feeling comfortable in that space. More and more people feel that they, there are voices there that will intrigue them or excitement, excite them or entertain them or what have you. And so it's become kind of, we're kind of in this crazy time, which is really amazing and fun of that if you want to have a conversation with people about pens, I'm not kidding. You, know, I mean, you Google, you will find – I back pull up my phone right now and there's a list of podcasts about different kinds of pens. Japanese pen makers or European pen makers yeah. or so on and so forth. Um, graphic, graphic artists and their pens. Yes, you know. Comic you know, book creators yeah, and their exactly, pens. Exactly, exactly. And there's probably a podcast about it. I mean there's – last time I played this game with someone like think of something obscure and someone said goat cheese. And we went look at the That's not obscure tons. enough. That's not, don't don't no, start with food. No, but the right. thing is, not only are there tons, but then break that down. You know, there's, there's, there's a podcast for fans of goat cheese who want to use it either to consume it or use it in cooking. There are fans for people who are interested in raising goats to make cheese. There are interested people who are interested in – who have been doing it – podcasts really targeted people who do this professionally. I mean, it's like there's a bunch of goat cheese podcasts, right? And it's just like um, when I, I worked for a while for a company called Audible, which is part of the Amazon ecosystem. And at one point, somebody said to me, um, what we really should do is find the best Game of Thrones podcast and convince them to come inside of Audible. And I listened to them. And then I said, there is no such thing as a best Game of Thrones podcast. Like, what do you mean? There's somebody who's got more downloads than anybody else is more popular. I'm like, yeah, but the thing to remember is that there are not – there's not one great Game of Thrones podcast that's meant for everyone. There are hundreds if not thousands of Game of Thrones yeah. podcasts targeted at different audiences or from different points of view. And so it really isn't what is the best overall. It's what's best for me. And the reason I mention this is when you're thinking of – Audience, which is just because I grew up in radio and I grew up as a radio programmer, I was kind of conditioned to think about audience and the decision I made and the impact that had on the number of people listening. And so as I kind of segued from being a programmer into being a creator, um, I kept that perspective with me of that if, if success to me is reaching a group of people who I want to broaden their minds or introduce them to things they haven't seen before or new ways of thinking and doing or make them laugh, make them cry, make them want to adopt a puppy, want to make them go out and vote, whatever, um, that I need to think from that person's perspective and frame everything so that it achieves my goal. If I want people to be outraged 
about the condition of homeless people in New York City. For example, um, I need to think about, okay, how am I telling these stories so that the end effect is people are going to hear this and say this is not acceptable, right? And even if you're less advocacy-oriented, um, every, every, every story has a moral to it and every – um, uh, uh, and, and every piece of journalism ever created has has uh, a perspective or a message it's trying to send. Sometimes that's simply that actions have consequences. But when you think from a listener's perspective, you get out of what I want to do and get into, if I'm using a mass media, I should think about what I'm trying to achieve. And uh, sometimes the answer to that is self-expression, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometime that effort is, or that that intention is, I want to change people's minds. I want to make somebody laugh. I want to make somebody cry. I want to, whatever that is, yeah. you know, voting, adopting the puppy, whatever. Um, and so you think that is creative inspiration at almost every stage of the process of putting something together. You know, how long should I be talking? Who should be talking? What kind of what kind of story are we telling? How do we tell it? All that should be framed from the almost reverse right. engineered from the action for the person. And so I think that's why I, an audience centric approach to creation I think is kind of essential. Well, Eric Newsom, you also uh, part of your experience making radio and podcast is working at NPR when mm-hmm. when when NPR uh, had a choice, right? Whether or not to um, embrace podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do you think that people who uh, are making radio at like um, smaller community radio stations, uh, how do you think they should think about podcasting uh, as far as um, – especially as far as the that audience first uh, point of view goes? Well, um, so I often tell when I talk to organizations, very small organizations, very large organizations that have outputs on different platforms – it could be a radio station that has FM signals or AM signals and has um, you know, a podcasting unit. It could be a company that has digital news, video, TV stations, radio stations, podcasts, YouTube channels, like all these different things. I give them both the same advice, which is think of the idea first and the story you want to create and then think about where you want to put it. Like – the New York Times, which has you know tons of different platforms reaching tens of millions of people, when that reporter is thinking about that story, are they starting off saying, "Okay, I'm going to make a podcast"? No, that's that's almost a recipe for failure. Or I'm going to do this as a photo uh, essay, or I'm going to do this as a video, or I'm going to do this as something in the paper. I, I think it's when you have someone who's capable of working on multiple platforms, be it like an FM radio or a podcast, for example. Think about what you're trying to do and ask yourself some questions about who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to achieve, and then ask which platform makes that more easy to be possible. There are some times when radio is going to be the answer, and there's some times when podcasting is going to be the answer. I myself feel that there will be FM radio probably for the rest of my lifetime, right? It's not dying away. But what it gets used for has always changed and always will continue to change. And people who insist that radio is one thing are the people who find themselves 
kind of being marginalized mm-hmm. in media conversations. But if you understand that, you know, radio was one thing in the 1940s and became something radically different in the 1950s when television evolved, then became something very different in the 60s and 70s when FM radio evolved. Music really made sense on the radio. Then became something unfortunate again in the 80s and 90s as consolidation happened. Yeah. And then you're watching – people are still kind of stra- scratching their heads trying to understand radio as an industry now. Uh, public radio, community right. radio, kind of a little bit of an outlier to that definition. But the one constant in radio is change. Yeah. And that's because radio tends to be a reactive thing to what's going on in the media around it. And so I think that for the rest of our lifetime, like 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 news, traffic, things that are happening in the moment, um, impeachment coverage, um, you know, what's happening on Wall Street, if you care about that, what's yeah. happening in a certain event that's happening about that, a sports game, so on and so forth. Who wants to listen to a podcast of a football game? No one's ever going to listen to that. Right. Right? Who's going to listen to a podcast of a live event that happened earlier in the day? Some people might. Very small number of people. If they had a choice of listening to it live or listening to it as a podcast. Yeah, it depends on your audience. I guess it does. And, you know, you could make the argument that one of the first things that attracted me to podcasting was time shifting. Yeah. Was uh, the ability to, okay, stations aired fresh air at three in the afternoon, but what if it was a podcast you could listen to at any time? Mm-hmm. That was pretty awesome, right? We used to, call it, you know, we used to compare it to TiVo, which is early DVR technology and so on and so forth. But then you start to realize that there's things that radio does that podcasting can never do. And there are things that podcasting can do, which radio can never do. Mm -hmm. So podcasting can do things like, let's say you um, are the goat cheese maker, right? If you did a radio about making goat cheese, you'd reach a couple people. But if you created something that 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 community of people who are interested in that can access without worrying about time or worrying about geography, all being in the same signal pattern area. Right. All of a sudden, you have a way you can reach a lot of people with the things you care about. And that's where podcasting excels. It can be found all over the world. Uh, yeah. you, you mentioned uh, radio starting in the 1940s, and it, I got excited because uh, one of the things that we focused on at Radio Survivor in 2019 more, uh, it, it really um, uh, gave me a lot to think about because uh, radio is now 100 years old, and mm-hmm. the, the story of radio in the 20s and the 30s um, feels very familiar to people paying attention to the story of, of uh, these internet mediums mm-hmm. and the, the kind of uh, exciting newness, um, the sort of chaotic, uh, uh, like uh, it's, it's, very, um, it's very ascendant in the media culture mm-hmm. and there's a lot of change. I mean, one decade to the next, you couldn't, you couldn't even begin to tell the story of the medium. Right. I mean, you could begin, <laughs> but right. you would never finish. Um, the the story of radio in the twenties is very much uh, is really fascinating. Um, well, Eric Newsom, uh, you're on Radio Survivor today. You you wrote a book, Make Noise: A Creator's Guide to Podcasting, and uh, I was excited reading it to find mention that uh, you have a very long. You started making radio when you were a teenager. Can you tell me about that beginning? Yeah, I um, I grew up loving radio, and I grew up really. Uh, amazed at what radio was, that it could be something to listen to music to. It could be something to learn about what's going on in the world. Um, I even was fascinated by shortwave radio where you could listen in and hear things in other countries, which I thought was just 
absolutely awesome. And um, so I kind of grew up understanding the power of radio. Not really kind of fully understanding it, but understanding that it had power. Where were you? I lived in Canton, Ohio when I grew up. And then I went to Kent State University, which is about an hour away from there. Um, Very infamous for events that happened there long before I went to school there. Um, And I I, I got a shift at the college radio station and was doing my two-hour show a week, blowing people's minds with my amazing taste in music. And, what time was your oh I don't know it was shift. like okay. it was like Sunday nights from like eight to ten or something like that it was like you know some some you know how those things go and one day I was in the office of the radio station and a guy walked over the public radio station that was housed on Kent State University uh, literally at that time located next door mm-hmm. like one door went in the student station the next door went into the public radio station and somebody from the public radio station came over and just walked in the office and said. I really need someone I can pay to watch tapes roll over Thanksgiving weekend. Uh huh. I'm like, sweet, I'd do that. Like, I think I paid three dollars and thirty five cents yeah. an hour because it would be illegal to to air holiday programming without a human body at the controls. I know. I don't know if it was illegal, but it was unwise. The technology yeah. didn't exist to really do that well, and so they needed someone to play legal IDs at the top of the hour and to switch out the reels when they ran out. They're only seventy five minutes long. They basically had everything pre-recorded all week, and they just need someone to go bank, 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 back and forth. And I did that, and I didn't mess it up. So I was allowed. They said, "Why don't you come do this every week on Sunday mornings, and we'll give you a bunch of tapes, you play them." And then so I did that for a long time, and eventually started working part time at the station, and eventually then started working full time in public radio. I've never really done anything else yeah. in my life. Well, can we go back to college radio? Yeah, sure. How? How, how quickly did you uh, give up your spot with your Oh, I kept it for a long show. time. I kept it for a long time just because it was fun. Yeah. You know? um, and, and uh, you know, every once in a while someone would call in on the, the, the phone line. I'm like, oh, my goodness, someone's actually listening. This is great. So, um, uh, yeah, so a couple of years I did that, and then I started working part-time and then full-time in, at, at that radio station and then going to several others. And I've never really done anything else except work in radio. Yeah. Ever since I was 19 years old and um, considerably older than that now. And so it's just been kind of like it just became a way for me to express myself through helping other people tell stories. And um, so I worked So I worked at the radio station where that was next door where I worked, walked in when I was 19 to get this job rolling tapes um, was, uh, you know, literally um, – Ten years later, I came back to that station um, and worked there and became the programming chief at that station, the program director at that station um, when I was 29. Mm -hmm. And um, almost everyone at the station was older than I was. Some of them were twice my age. Um, Many of them had worked there when I was an intern at 19, and now I'm the boss. And uh, that was a a kind of not an ideal situation for a new boss to be in, right? The youngest person, many people had known you since you were literally a teenager. And this was something that needed to, uh, I needed to figure out how to work in this environment. So I started to think about how I can get people much more talented than me to trust me and do what I asked them and figure things out. And I just figured out a way to like 
say, you know, I'm not the smartest person in this room, but I can work harder than any of you. And I will promise you that if we come up with an idea of what we want to do together, I will work harder than you to make sure it happens. And the people like, wait, this guy wants to work to make me more successful. That's great. I'm in. What kind of, what kind of radio was being made at that time at this? And can you name the public radio station? Yeah, it was WKSU in Kent, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, an NPR news and classical station at the time. aired classical during the midday and, and NPR news and entertainment on the drive time and over the weekends. And it's kind of like a mixed bag on the weekends. And, uh, I was program director there for a number of years, probably six years. And then I went to NPR and I did a version of the same thing. I right. said, you know, you guys are so much, I have no right to do, tell you to do anything, Terry Gross or Car Talk guys, right? Right. But I, um, uh, I will help you and I will work hard for you to achieve the things you think are important, which are the things that I think are important too. Eric Newsom, I, wanna, I still want to make you go back and tell me more about college radio. Because, I mean, one of our one of Radio Survivor's uh, themes over the years, especially because of uh, one of our co-producers, Jennifer Waits, Jennifer has devoted uh, her entire life to to um, being one of College Radio's biggest uh, fans and mm-hmm. boosters, and now um, maybe a, a, what's the right word, um, unofficial historian <laughs> of, of College Radio in the United States, so much so that Jennifer uh, is now a... Um, on the Library of Congress uh, Radio Preservation Task Force, focusing on college radio That's and great. the preservation. So, um, I know Jennifer would be very excited to talk to you more about how college <laughs> radio. And what I'm excited about is this notion that I don't know how rare it is now, but um, at this time in the early '80s, mm-hmm. uh, uh, mid '80s, mid to late '80s, yeah. Uh, at, at the time that you were doing college radio at Kent State, there was the public radio station directly next door where. Mm-hmm. The manager at the time could knock on the door and, and bring in new new workers, right. give them new opportunities. This is something that uh, I'm still uh, fascinated by, the way that how do, how do young people who are working as volunteers find their way into, into jobs in the thing that they love? And I think that college radio, especially when it has a, uh, a close relationship with public radio, mm-hmm. as, as you were lucky enough to have there at Kent State, um, is a really important part of that that path. I, it's kind of like, you know, I've heard some kind of like thing that people write on an inspirational poster uh, somewhere that uh, luck is actually opportunity and preparation. And I think that that equation actually works in this scenario. So I was at this WKSR, which was the college radio station. How is WKSR doing? In it's now an online stream. It's yeah. not even WKSR anymore. It's been morphed over the years and, and doesn't even broadcast anymore. Uh, uh, it is just online. Right, and but uh, Jennifer would be very quick to point out that online radio at a college radio station is very much radio, especially yes. if if um, how most people are going to consume it right? yeah and if if the people that are making it are passionate about it and show up on time and do their shifts and people listen to it it's it's radio yeah well i always describe that radio is an experience not a technology right it's a certain type of listening experience and so there are lots of people who describe podcasts even as radio or describe yeah. online streams as radio if it's the the interesting thing is if you go into and like uh, Apple Music or you go into other places and you look at the radio tab, you'll see that most of the organizations in that list are not actually radio stations. They are internet streaming 
right. uh, organizations out of somebody's basement or an office space or what have you. There's no tower or uh, broadcasting actually happening. Um, it's it's broadcast over you know a stream, yeah, which is still valid. But but people you know consumers make their choices about what they want to call things, and regardless of what we want to call them, they're the ones who get to pick. So um, going back to the college radio thing. Uh, you know, we could do anything we wanted in that show uh, except something that would be a violation of FCC uh, code or, or policy. Yeah. Um, and so we could play whatever we want. We could do whatever we want. We could add any element of to what we want. And very early in my college radio years, I made a friend at the radio station. And we would occasionally guest on each other's shows, just kind of be a second voice. And for some reason, we ended up kind of making my show kind of the wacky one where we would like we would pre-record bits and we would create these dumb little things. We would pretend we were on location around the world and we would kind of make sound design it so it sounded like it was actually in that place. Mm -hmm. Just all this ridiculous, dumb, goofy stuff that delighted us and often in, you know, annoyed people who are listening. But the the – the important thing about that is because I was allowed to just play around and figure out how all of this equipment worked and what happens when I do this instead of this. Oh, my goodness. You hear that? We can try that too. And how do we you know, patch things through to make these things happen? Or, you know, I ended up learning that radio station inside and out. I knew how every piece of equipment worked. I knew how to make all kinds of crazy things happen. And so as a result, that was kind of my preparation. I like learned how to do all this stuff yeah. just by playing around for the two people who listened to my show, right? Like, um, or however many there were, were yes. many, but I was playing around, entertaining myself and my friend, and but in the process, I was building a pretty amazing arsenal of production technique, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then when the guy came over to the radio station to say, "Who wants to be on the radio?" On right. Thanksgiving weekend, he Again. came in asking, was into the office saying, I need someone. He didn't say, I want you to do it. Right. He didn't say, uh, someone tells me you're smart or good. He came in and said, I need someone. And I'm like, I'm that someone. Mm -hmm. I stood up and said, I want to be the one. And what got me in the door, even though it was literally changing tapes, the reason I knew how to cue, in, cue tapes, the reason I knew how to operate the board the reason I knew how to record carts, the reason I knew how to take meter readings, the reason I knew all this is because at the radio station, the college radio station, I said, I just want to learn every nook and cranny here. Yeah. So when I went over to the public radio station, I, A, had that whole basis of knowledge to build off of. And then secondly, I had the sense of curiosity for wanting to know how things work. Mm -hmm. And as long as I didn't take the station off the air, which I actually did a couple times and playing around and poking around with stuff, I figured out everything. Yeah. Right? And that's when I became much more useful to them because – Oh, you know, that Eric kid knows how to do STL readings. And, oh, that Eric kid knows how to make this, you know, set up the microphones in the, in the larger studio. Yeah. And it's like – and I just – because I just figured it out. There's a theme in your book because uh, you're, the Eric Newsom, you're describing how your curiosity and passion to learn how to make a radio station work mm -hmm. both at your college radio station at Kent State and then your opportunity to, to start working the lowest wage possible at the public radio station next door at Kent State – um, your passion and curiosity for radio at that moment in your young life uh, is something that you advocate for in your book, Make Noise, uh, Creator's Guide to Podcasting. 
that all podcasters need to have. That's true. To to be to to launch their show. Um, I'd also extend that argument to to radio hosts. Obviously, um, your audience for this book could be radio hosts, but you don't um, you don't explicitly talk about them very much. Uh, the the dinosaurs of radio. Uh, well, the no, passion it's, for radio. Well, I, the, I shouldn't have said that. The, um, no, the the, the the subtitle is Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great and Audio Stories. Great story. audio story Doesn't totally. matter when it's on. And I originally, in the first draft of the book, took a much more ecumenical approach mm-hmm. towards podcasting versus radio versus streaming. And my editors said, you know, 95% of the people yeah. who buy this book are going to be interested in podcasting. The so zeitgeist. Just make, yeah, isn't let, radio. Let's, let's seize that moment. In fact, I think the the original t- subtitle of the book was A Creator's Guide to Great Audio Storytelling. And they said, we want the word podcasting in there. And yeah, I'm of like, course. Okay, we'll figure it out. But there's, you know, the when I was, a couple years ago, I decided I was going to learn to use a manual camera. And I bought a camera and a couple lenses. And then I bought a bunch of books or got them from the library about how to use this thing and how to teach myself how to use it. I didn't really learn very well. Um, but I noticed something almost immediately, which surprised me, which was the books that I enjoyed the most and learned the most from were actually written in the seventies and eighties mm-hmm. before there was even a digital camera to even be an option, let alone the dominant way of taking fo- photographs. And when the option came up to write this book about podcasting and audio making, I um, decided I want to write a version of that book that was written in the 70s and 80s and is still useful to me 40 years later mm-hmm. um, because it focused on principles yeah. and ideas like composition and light and scene and all these other things that transcend technology and change, right? Again, going back to... What doesn't change. Right. So this right. book could, would have worked as a how to make great radio. It would have and could. If, if the and, internet didn't right, work. Right. And exist. who knows what the next iteration of audio will be. It hopefully uh, will be as useful then. Then, then you can now. go yell at your editors. I told you not to put podcasting on the cover. Uh, we'll, write an, we'll run another yeah. batch of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, we're talking with Eric Newsom here on Radio Survivor, uh, author of the new book, Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Uh, Eric Newsom was also... Uh, Led podcast and original programming uh, efforts at NPR and at Audible in uh, years past, and is currently co-founder of Magnificent Noise, a podcast and creative consulting company. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I thought of when I was reading your book is that um, I really want people who are excited about making podcasts to know that they can go to radio stations to volunteer, mm-hmm. um, because if they're if they're lucky enough to have a radio station near their community that accepts volunteer workers, uh, it's 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 so important for people not to have to have that first high stakes interview on their show be their very first interview. And mm-hmm. the more days, weeks, and years you can get behind microphones talking to people, join other people's shows, and help them make their shows, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, it's key to learning how to do this well making radio and it worries me if uh if the future is only podcasting and every podcaster hopes that their podcast becomes uh enormously successful on day one Mm -hmm. that we're that we're losing opportunities for radio people to 
to learn the skills to talk to one another? I, th- I think it, the water flows both ways. Um, I know at NPR there are a number of people who are contributors to NPR's big shows who got their start in podcasting, learned how to cut their mm. teeth, and then went over to radio and did did great work there, and vice versa too. People who start off in radio can can make, not necessarily do, but can make good podcasters if they can figure out how to adapt those skills. And so I, I, I don't think that there is really kind of like a – a right method, as long as in the end you're doing the right programming and the right platform uh, for the right audience. Yeah, but you, you, I mean, you say so in the book at one point, um, and I just want to echo that for everybody who dreams of making great podcasts or great radio, that there is a, um, there's a big benefit towards uh, uh, trying to make more more often than trying to make one perfect. Right. Yeah, allow yourself, you know. Allow yourself to make um, some great mistakes. You know, if if you are doing things right, when you look back at stuff you did a year or two or five years ago, you will uh, cringe because you're like, oh, that wasn't very good or that wasn't that, that I would never do that today. Well, of course, you've grown. You've learned, right? And which is one of the reasons I never listen to things that I've done in the past is because it just makes me crazy. All I can hear is all the things I would have done differently. But um, I think that the important thing is just to be in the situation in which you can grow. And one of the great things about radio stations, especially community stations and those community stations that have some sort of um, tutoring, mentoring, training for um, new participants – is that you have the benefit not only of the this radio station, but you have this network of people who are willing to help you and you can learn from and be inspired by. And podcasting, even when you're doing it in groups, is often a very solitary experience. And, you know, I I have a company now where we have eight or nine producers sitting around at any given time and they're all sitting around a table with headphones on and nobody's talking to each other. It's like it's just a very solitary way of working. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of being in a radio station is it is almost by definition a collaborative environment, a community of, of not just listeners but creators. Yeah. And you can be inspired by someone else. You can learn from someone else. You can learn what you don't want to do from somebody else. Yeah. And that that's how I learned most of what I know is just by watching other people who I thought were great and thinking about, well, why are they great? What makes them great? And you miss that if you're just – Starting a podcast on your own. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if there's a if there's something to be advocated for, like a future of um well, and we have talked about that on Radio Survivor, one of the very first episodes that um really lit up the brains of Paul Reese Mandel and myself when we 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 stumbled into a a radio station in a, a small community in Washington state that realized that they weren't gonna raise a tower. That they were mm-hmm. going to be a community podcasting uh, endeavor. I forget how they put it. But it, right. in all, for all extents and purposes, it was a community radio station, but they had no tower. Mm-hmm. And so they did community podcasting. Um, you know, it, they, they had a room in one of the public uh, spaces of that small community, and, they, and people treated it the way that radio people would see right. – uh, as radio, especially supporting each other's work and, and caring about each other's podcasts, mm-hmm. but all of it was focused on focused on this one 
small island community in Washington State. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, there should be, and I think I think podcasters know that already. They're they're starting to coalesce around uh, mutual uh, mutual caring about each other and and sharing of experiences. So many things in podcasting, from audience building to finding ways to edit your work and get feedback on your work, are, are basically building a community of people who will support you and you support them. And those are the things that work. I mean, in that in the book, I spend a lot of time talking about very DIY ways to yeah. evangelize your work with others, to take advantage of your friends, to give you feedback and be your truth tellers about how things are going and what you could do to improve. And that all that stuff costs nothing. And all it takes is, is friendships and sense of community. Yeah. And effort, you know, it takes, it takes work, right. but yeah, the book you're referencing is make noise, a creator's guide to podcasting. Your name is Eric Newsom. We have uh, a couple more minutes together mm-hmm. here on radio survivor. Um, do people ask you what the future is of podcasts? All the time, almost yeah. every day. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Um, uh, and what do you wish they asked you instead? <laughs> what do I wish they'd asked me instead? Um, one of the things that I, you know, and people ask about the future all the time, and I say, I have no clue. Your guess is as good as mine. The only thing I know is it'll be different. That's the only thing I know for sure is that it will be different. And because, again, the the history of media is it's in it always in its infinite infancy it's always day one there's always new opportunities that are coming out and things change so I, that's that's when i talk about the future that's what i say it'll be different don't worry about it. how just in fact i have a thing in the book where i talk about something i really took away from my amazon days which is the whole concept of don't think about what changes think about what stays the same mm-hmm. and that that should guide you through change is kind of basically sticking, you know, what do you, what, what's important to you? What are your values? And how do you apply that to everything? And, uh, which is, you know, odd. People don't think of Amazon as, as having that kind of a rooted value system, but actually it does have a rooted value system. And, um, uh, and sometimes it's, it's way too efficient. And yeah. they don't were, think- were they able to put that rooted value system to work as far as making uh, radio and audio stories? Um, it was really hard. Yeah, it was really hard because Audible, which is the the audio kind of wing of of Amazon, and the first the first paywalled uh, podcast network. That's right, uh, which goes back twenty years. Right, uh, the um, uh, they were used to being a merchandiser of audio products like yeah. audio books and learning courses and some original work, um, but they didn't have much of a track record of making anything, and they yeah. definitely didn't have a track record of making anything that had had much of an impact. It was world. certainly one of the places, though, where um, before the pod, the word was podcast, right. uh, the company Audible offered time shifted. Yeah, radio that was a big, that was a, one of their big selling points yeah. back then. They've always they've always had a diversity of content and a diversity. You would have had things. to listen on your laptop, kids, and believe or, it or not, or a custom made MP3 player. The first MP3 player, commercially uh, released MP3 player, was manufactured by Audible to use with its service. It's now in the Smithsonian. It's uh, they've. I want one. Yeah, <laughs> they're, I, they're I rare. I don't need one, but I want one. <laughs> they're rare, but that's used to be how people would do it back then, and um, uh, so. The question that I wish more people asked, because it's where I think there are great lessons to be learned, 
is in not thinking of failure as something that has to be swept under a rug or forgotten or turned away from or it's an embarrassment. Um, and, you know, it's something I've always felt. But again, again, in my Amazon years, that's part of the effect is, you know, we spent money doing this project. It didn't work out. It didn't work out how we wanted. But boy, did we learn a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. And that has value. Right. right. Um, that if you are in a, in a startup environment or, in, or kind of an agile uh, digital media environment, there are different measures for success. Success can be financial outcome. It can be building an audience or engagement with people. And it can be just you've made the people there smarter, your coworkers smarter. Yeah. So they can take what they learned in this thing that was a quote-unquote failure and apply those lessons to something that will not be a failure. Yeah. And I think the entire podcast endeavor at NPR benefited from – the mistakes we were making in other things. And we said, we're never doing that again. And oh, we're never doing that again. Or you know what? We saw person X doing something different than us and we like what happened for them. So let's try to do it for us, the same thing, or try to, let's try to tweak it or build on it. And so the question I wish people asked more often is what they can learn from when things don't work. Hmm. Yeah. The stakes were so high. I just, I the thing I love about podcasts is that the stakes aren't so high. Uh Uh-huh. Well, they know, can be. They could be. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I don't like about podcasts mm-hmm. in in the year twenty twenty is uh, that the stakes are now uh, raised. Could uh, be. Yeah. It depends. It depends on what company you work for and how many jobs and who has to move to what town if it all <laughs> right, right. if it all doesn't turn out the way that somebody had planned. Um, I'm trying to apply that uh, wisdom that you were just sharing to to small radio stations to small community radio stations, and I would mm-hmm. say that. I would assume I've never run a small community radio station, uh-huh. but I would assume that the that the um, that the goal of running them is to provide a public service to your community and to make sure that that service was um, useful to the largest number of people. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, you could see how making radio or podcasts at that small community entity could be informed by. Uh, keeping those things in mind and yeah. and trying trying things and then like one of the things i was i was deeply mulling as i read your book uh eric newsom your book about how to make great podcasts uh called make noise and um a lot of it is is uh obviously the people that are going to read it want to want to win at podcasting Mm-hmm. But I do think that one of the things that we at Radio Survivor care about a lot is um, making podcasts for other reasons or making radio for other reasons other than uh, being popular. Mm-hmm. But there's a real tension in my mind still about that because also um, when you make great radio, it is has the potential to be more popular. Mm-hmm. And even uh, great radio with more of a public service element to it um, doesn't have to – you don't have – like there's a risk – that I've seen, especially in my community radio past, that like people would be proud of how unsuccessful their show really was as, as far as maybe raising money from the listeners because mm-hmm. that would be uh, proof that they mattered. Right. And it's sort of taking um, – I don't. there's an expression for uh, using the evidence in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know what the question is with that tension, but well, it's something that that's, uh, I can't stop thinking about. I don't think it's a tension at all. I think that's a false construct. 
I think that that many people share in. Um, I think that um, when you use words like popular or public service, those are not specific enough. Mm. And I think that what happens is people define that differently. And what I consider to be public service may be very different than what you consider public service, yet they are both very valid definitions of public service. Mm-hmm. And where, where I think a lot of arguments happen or a lot of things kind of go wrong is when you have a group of people who are all operating with a different description of public service. Yeah, or free right? speech. Or, or free, right, right, yeah. right, exactly. And, and popular, too, is incredibly subjective. What, what is the measure of success with that? Yeah. You know, uh, if I'm, I guess, go back to our goat cheese example again. If I'm making the goat cheese podcast for and, and, and it's meant for people who are, let's say it's just for people who want to make uh, bespoke uh, artisanal goat cheese in the state of Oregon. Um, that's not an audience that's going to be measured in millions. It's probably not an audience that's going to be measured in thousands. Yeah. But if you are passionate about reaching those people to talk about things that people in Oregon who want to make goat cheese care about, and they really do care about it, and they're really happy that somebody else cares about it too, um, then, then that – are you popular then? Right. You know, if, if, you have, if, you, if your podcast is being listened to by every uh, artisanal goat cheese maker in the state of Oregon, right. um, that's popular in that group. You know, it all depends on how you define success. Yeah. And if you're doing something that is meant to be heard by a smaller group of people – and that that podcast has the ability to connect to those people. That's success just as much as creating something like Radio Lab or TED Radio Hour, which are measured in the millions of downloads. A yeah, month, right. And you know, to be honest, some of those big things sometimes they fail at, at doing at really distinguishing themselves. Even though they get millions of downloads, they kind of get a little lazy, right? And you have um, smaller podcasts. They can have a very, very specific definition of success. Yeah. Like there's an example. I was in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago for a book tour stop, and I met two people who work together and are making a podcast that they put out in the world about the office gossip in their office. <laughs> and they're making this podcast for one woman who is out on maternity leave and wants to keep up with the, with the, with the, what's going on in the office, you know, who's dating, who, who's mad at who, who gotten, who's up for promotion, who's their competitor, like all that kind of chit chat, water cooler chit chat. They get together and they make this podcast to catch her up and they put it out as a podcast and she listens to it. it it's available to the public, but the public doesn't know it's there. The public doesn't care. I care or wouldn't be able lot. to follow it, follow it, but it's got an audience of one. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And they're it. making it for their friend. Yeah. And their friend loves it and they love making it and they think all think it's really great. And um what's wrong with that? That's the definition of success and they have a 100% success rate. Right. That. <laughs> That's right. Um Eric Newsom, uh it, I would you change how podcasts are measured uh as far as like uh, right now? Uh-huh. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we mostly have the iTunes uh, I said iTunes. Yeah. We have the Apple podcasting charts. Right. Would you uh what would you want to measure things? Like if I I've I've said this before on on the radio show, um if I could, I would really it would be so amazing 
if the way Twitter once upon a time, I don't know if they still give it this to us, the way that you could look at um, regional trending topics, right. not just national or global trending topics, it would be uh, a game changer if we could have a local Apple Podcasts chart, you know, Los Angeles's chart and New York's chart and then Seattle and Portland. And well, there, every are, market. there are uh, country charts, which aren't that useful in the United States, but are elsewhere in the world. Um, and uh, there is – you can break down data by state for some providers. Like mm-hmm. Libsyn does that. Um, I think right. Spotify does that. You can too. start digging for the you information. Can, yeah, it's not that difficult to figure out. But, you know, the, the I – I've been fortunate that I've had access to a lot of data points in many of my previous employers. And, and I always say, okay, what is actionable and then what is trivia? Actionable being I'm going to make a change in what I do based off what I see, mm-hmm. right? If I see that people are not finishing an episode because it's too long, I'm, do I make it shorter to make it so that it fits more in for them and they can hear the whole thing in one sitting? Right. Um, that's an action, Right. But if I just want to know that, you know, oh, I'm real big in Arkansas, like, what am I going to do with that? Right? It's just, it's just trivia. That doesn't mean it's not nice to know those things. Right. But and some, some podcasters would use that to, to set their next uh, tour destination. Right, right. Well, no, they, no, they would. Yeah. They would. And that is, that's action, right? right. Um, uh, but, you know, if I'm, uh, if I'm doing a podcast and it's at the top of the charts in Chile, so what? Why yeah. does that's that's a nice trivia point? Like, yeah. hey, the cocktail party say, hey, I'm number two in Chile right now, and I'm big in Japan. Yeah, big in Japan. Like those type of things, they do happen. You can't find that information out, but it's like, so what? What does that really actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're using it for validation, well, there's other ways to get validation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric Newsom, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having yeah. me. My thanks again to our guest, Eric Newsom, for bringing us uh, some wisdom and some advice from his latest book, Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Screech, record, scratching, soundtrack. This is Eric Klein from the future interrupting today's podcast to let you know that that interview with Eric Newsom was recorded back in February of 2020. February 4th is when we released it, and so... um. Yeah, Eric Newsom was on a book tour of all things. I went and met him in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon, all of this um, before COVID. And why do I bring it up? Well, because I thought that it there were some really interesting elements, of course, in the lens of uh, having lived through seven months of the pandemic in the United States um, that I wanted to talk about in the extra time we have left on the radio program and podcast um, the hidden benefits of working together on common projects in a room <laughs> with other people. And what do we lose when um, we lose that? You know, other people might know more about this than me, about uh, how life has been uh, in the quote-unquote virtual office or the virtual distance learning in schools. Um, I think about it all the time, having uh, once had a job inside of a building full of radio professionals and how enriching that was for me as a young professional uh, to be in constant contact with uh, people of all skill levels, beginners who I could teach uh, my radio skills to, experts who they could teach their skills to me, uh, everything in between because it's a spectrum and you could learn something from everybody. 
uh, both as a teacher and a learner, all of that, what a unique and important part of our lives was a building that we could uh, be inside of together. Hopefully it comes back around sometime soon. But as a radio producer, as a podcast producer, I thought that this was worth mentioning, not just to be nostalgic, but also because I think in a socially distanced way, we might be able to reproduce some of those um, elements of working together uh, more intentionally uh, while we're all separated if that's how your work environment is now currently functioning. Um, Work being something we can do uh, for money, but also work something that we do um, because we love it. So as a podcast producer, um, how can we build that kind of community Oh, it's on my mind. I don't have an answer. But I think it was certainly interesting thinking about this interview uh, with a with a podcasting expert from back in February of 2020 um, through the lens of somebody uh, listening to it now in September. Uh, I also, you know, I really, like, I want to emphasize how, uh, I mean, I'm rebroadcasting this interview because it was one of our, our favorites here on Radio Survivor. And I think that uh, listening again, one of the things that I'm really happy about is that, like, I'm glad we got the chance to talk about how um, when you start a podcast and you're new to the work. And um, I think a lot of if you Google how do I podcast, you're going to end up with uh, discussions of technologies and which apps to buy and what microphone is the the hottest deal or the best investment um and all of that is important you need a microphone you might need editing software or an app on your machine but i always want to focus when that conversation comes up on uh the other side of it your set of skills as a podcaster as a radio producer and how you can develop those, uh, no matter what the tools are that you have, and how important they are. Um, the organization of an interview, the listening and uh, turn-taking element of an interview, um, how to structure it, and how also uh, to bring a certain kind of intention to the work that is different depending on what your goals are as a podcaster. I think you know, this might be a, a bit of a side side concern, but I think one of the things that bugs me about podcasting so much is that there seems to be an intention when the interview is set up to create a certain kind of heightened comedy energy in the interview that I wish more podcasters took more notes uh, from people who uh, are coming at the work from a journalism standpoint, although that can be very dry and very almost unlistenable, right? But that Something about uh, the listening and the questions and the turn-taking and uh, trying to elicit stories and information that journalists work on, uh, I I would like to hear more of that in the world of podcasting from what I've heard. Uh, It's happening every day. There are many good podcasters and uh, even ones that are starting out at this very moment, at this very second, podcasters who are doing incredible work on day one. But I, I really appreciate that. Uh, part of this interview today with Eric Newsom, this idea that, um, well, if you read if you read Eric Newsom's book, uh, Creator's Guide to Podcasting, you sort of are are given a bunch a set of skills to hit the ground running and to create great work. Um, if you're new to it, if you have been working in podcasts for years, it's also a great way to um, sort of uh, organize your thoughts on how to launch the next show. But I I 
you can hear listening to the interview that there was a part of my one of my main concerns is that people should podcast without slowing you know one of the things that i've experienced as a as a podcast producer working with clients friends volunteer work paid work is that there is a tension around uh launching the first show and having uh, being successful right out of the gate, which is, uh, you know, is useful. It's important to do that. But you're denying yourself the opportunity to do one of the most important things, which is uh, practice the work of interviewing people. If you don't start interviewing people, you're not going to get better at interviewing people. You might need a few interviews before uh, you get good at it. You might need a hundred. And... Uh, because every podcast has a numbered list order of each episode, I feel like that first episode, the the stakes are too high, really, in podcasting. It's kind of a flaw of the technology that episode 01 is your first interview for a lot of people. And, you know, one of the cool things about radio of the past before it was time shifted and archived on the internet forever was that your first interview receded farther and farther into the past. Um, also, many podcasts, no one listens to the first one. They only listen to the newest one. So, you know, just something that I'm thinking about. Uh, Miles, I really appreciate on today's episode the importance of college radio. And, uh, you know, it's not something that was in Eric Newsom's book. It was something that we teased out in the interview back in February is that um, Eric Newsom was able to succeed in radio in part because he was given a professional space to make radio. But uh, as an amateur, as a college student, as a young person, uh, he had the the playground. The sandbox was professional, but the expectations for him were uh, that he could just uh, play and do work. And I think one of the things that I didn't know was happening until uh, I began working on Radio Survivor and and making these episodes with Jennifer Waits and Paul Reismandel is that uh, college radio is um, facing a lot of challenges that um, – I you know I don't know if this is statistically accurate, but there's a perception that I have that a lot of stations are are losing uh, losing ground, right? That 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 universities are disinvesting. At least certain ones are going off the air. It's all anecdotal. It's you know we should be very careful when we when we talk about whether things are in decline or not from this platform. But the idea that schools, institutions, you know, the people that run these places that are facing austerity and budget shortfalls and other, um, you know, pressures uh, will, especially in the past decades, have shut down their radio stations um, in part because there was often the um, the perception, or at least this was what put, was put out in the public relations materials to justify the radio stations being lost is that the the industry is changing so much that these college radio stations are no longer relevant uh, to the students learning practices and so they the universities have been uh, letting them go and i just like love how eric newsom this person who was given an opportunity as a gen xer to grow as a radio professional that it all started for him in college radio and i really 
would hope that the next generation of college students are given the same opportunities as Gen X was given, as the baby boomers were given, as even the millennials, God bless the millennials and, and their, uh, what they've gone through, whether or not their college radio stations were there and functioning and how much they, how much debt they had to take on to uh, enjoy that work. Um, it's just something that I still care about. And that's all I wanted to say today on Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been a, a rebroadcast of episode number 231, but it, with with a new outro from me, Eric Klein. Um, and Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. This interview that I recorded with Eric Newsom back in February, um, I... Let me just say, I've said this before on the program, and I'll say it again on today's episode for the podcast audience. It, it was a very um, exciting interview for me. I actually um, lost sleep <laughs> thinking about preparing for it because uh, in so many ways I was um, uh, you know, excited about this opportunity to speak with someone who wrote a book about podcasting and who also had such a uh, – influential role in the sort of history of podcasting when I was very engaged as a listener. Um, you know, I knew more about podcasts uh, 10 years ago than I know right now because it was a tinier uh, pond to swim in and because I was a, you know, fully engaged and excited radio professional listening to this new emerging medium take shape. Um, so I was excited to talk to Eric Newsom. And uh, part of that excitement, I'm sure, comes through in the interview that you heard. The other part of it was that I actually got um, – I actually took about 12 minutes of my time with Eric uh, to just sort of describe a lot of the mental uh, – a lot of what was going through my brain before we started the interview. And uh, I think all that stuff is fascinating I cut it out of the radio version, and that's what allowed me all this opportunity to uh, to blab at the end of the show. But um, I have a there's a version that version is available to supporters of the Radio Survivor podcast. We have a Patreon, and our Patreon is not something we talk about every week. Uh, we actually rarely talk about it because it's it's part of our radio culture uh, as community radio. Uh, you know, amateur volunteer professional types, not to sort of uh, toot our own horn or try to fundraise for ourselves. And, um, but the Patreon is always there. And if you give $1, it allows you access to a handful of special interview episodes uh, that we put out, um, uh, including this Eric Newsom interview. So you can hear the full length version if you give $1 to Radio Survivor on the Patreon. It's a you know, it's a renewing, it's a renewing uh, gift that you give to our show, uh, and you can unsubscribe. You can give us the one dollar, listen to the Eric Newsom, and then uh, you know, withdraw your your monthly support. Or you can keep supporting us. You know, I'm going to take this opportunity on the podcast today to let you know that um, speaking of emails that we answer back in March of 2020, I got a really wonderful email from a listener. Uh, and got their permission to share their question with with the audience. So I'm gonna just go ahead and read uh, read that email that we got, and it was uh, from 
a listener named Kyle, and Kyle wrote, I just finished listening to your February 4th interview with Eric Newsom. Nice work. Thank you, Kyle. In Newsom's book, Make Noise, he talks a lot about the editing process and the copious amounts of time a producer should plan on devoting to editing. Did the Newsom interview involve a ton of edits? How much time did you spend editing the interview? Thank you. And I answered Kyle back. I'm going to read you my answer. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for your email. The short answer is no. The Eric Newsom interview that we broadcast on Radio Survivor was very, very lightly edited, especially when considering the kind of intense editing that Newsom recommends in his book. Uh, The one major edit was that Eric Newsom and myself were, were recorded for about 12 minutes before the version that we broadcast. Those 12 minutes could have been shared with the audience. They were not off the record, but I chose to start the interview where I started it. I'm happy to have received your email because your question drives to the heart of one of the issues that I thought was really interesting in Eric Newsom's book. I would agree with him that intense editing makes for better radio and podcasts, but I did challenge him in the interview that this level of work on just one episode is not going to be possible for every producer. It's a privilege to have that many hours of free time and an even larger privilege to be paid a wage for those hours of work. I think what Eric Newsom is doing is advocating for a type of podcast and radio that requires a lot of professional hours to produce because that is the kind of radio he likes to hear best. It's also the kind of radio that he's been paid to make. Uh, But it's, oh, yeah, that's what I say right here. But it is also the kind of radio he makes a living producing. Those of us in college and community radio by necessity oftentimes produce a different kind of radio. On an early episode of Radio Survivor, I spoke with one of my former colleagues at KPFA and friend, Brian Edwards-Tekert, and Brian has uh, gave this bit of advice to radio producers on the Radio Survivor episode that's available there. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. The best way to learn to be a great interviewer is to take a one-hour interview of yours and edit it down to 20 minutes. That's what Brian recommended. Uh, Work that Brian suggested would take about four to six hours as a beginner, Uh, four to six hours of editing to get that one hour interview down to 20 minutes. Brian said that the process of doing that edit uh, on your tape, not just cutting out large chunks by cutting out very small sections, uh, that when you do those hours and hours of work, that in the end you learn new skills as an interviewer. So it's your, your time as an editor informs your work as an interviewer in the future. Uh, which is something that came up in the interview today that I thought was really uh, great. I did want to sort of talk about that here in the outro, in the extended outro, that uh, nine months later, six months later, after this interview was recorded, um, I really appreciate that part that Eric Newsom talked about, the um, the value of failure, you know, uh, failure in scare quotes, I guess, that, you know... um, in a lot of industries, in a lot of job places, in a lot of projects, when you when you create something that that quote unquote fails, um, you bury it. You forget the experience. And in when you are a radio producer, and in all other things, to be honest, but especially for those of us who make this kind of work, there, there's no such thing. This is work that you did and you learned a lot from, and then you continue on to the next thing. It actually is part of the theme that I wanted to keep emphasizing here that um, there is this, uh, in my experience working with other podcast producers and myself as an, as a, someone with ambition to create great podcasts that became very popular, there's a, 
there's a real fear that you shouldn't launch until you're perfect. And that, in my opinion, will always sort of block you from getting better. Right? If you got to make some bad stuff and not bad, right? You got to make you you got to make your first work to get to your best work. Uh, you know, I know that this is something that um this American Life's producer Ira Glass talks about uh, when he talks about getting better at podcasting, getting better at radio. Uh it takes time and you should you should give yourself an opportunity to to get your first, second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh interviews out of the way. Um anyway, so back to Kyle's email about the interview. Uh, Brian Edward Secret suggested that you worked about four to six hours to cut a one-hour interview of yours down to 20 minutes. And by doing that work, it makes you a better interviewer. Uh, you learn better how to organize your time with your guest, uh, when to interrupt, how to frame your questions better to get the responses that you're seeking. Uh, so, new paragraph. Intense editing practice improves your live radio interviewing skills. I agree with Brian, I wrote to Kyle. When I was starting my radio career, I enjoyed having the privilege of doing hours and hours of editing to make a one-hour interview fit into a 20-minute time slot, or working five hours to write a three-minute news story using three 15-minute radio interviews, which is something that I had the opportunity to do both as a volunteer and as a paid worker uh, back at my radio job. Uh, you know, producing radio stories, which I love. I, lo I wish there was more of this work in the world, uh, people producing three-and-a-half-minute radio stories uh, based on hours of work. Uh, after doing that level of editing work for over a decade, I think that my abilities as an interviewer have improved, which <laughs> might have allowed me to air the Newsom interview mostly unedited. Uh, probably true. It's probably true that because I have experience as a radio producer and podcast editor, uh, the structure of the interview went so well. I would also say that because Eric Newsom has so much experience being interviewed, we could, you know, we could record something in one take and air it. Uh, you know, the, you know, the two of us have experience, uh, more him more than me. Uh, Back to the letter. Other than starting the radio version 12 minutes into the interview, the only other edits I made were one reference Eric Newsom made to the sound of the elevator dinging outside of the room, and one time he audibly cleared his throat, and one time I interrupted myself in mid-question to make a reference to my feelings distracted by being overexcited to be sitting with him. That was a good edit. I, <laughs> I almost wish I hadn't admitted out loud that I made that edit. Uh, the rest is presented to the audience as it was recorded. I also selected to the end of the interview... Oh, I also selected to end the interview at a very high point in the conversation, even though there's about three or four minutes of perfectly fine questions and answers that we did record. That's, again, available um, in the unedited version that you can get as a Patreon supporter. Uh, the other reason this particular interview is easy to air without intense editing is because Eric Newsom is a consummate radio pro, and there's nothing superfluous in his sentences. Uh, thank you so much for your email, uh, and thank you for listening. And then I asked Kyle if I could um, share the content of his question. So, Kyle, thank you so much. It's, I'm excited that I'm finally doing that. Um, and then Kyle wrote back. Kyle wrote back and said, um, let's see. Oh, here it is. Hi, Eric. Thanks for the quick reply and for the detail. It helps a ton. And this level of advice, tricks, examples, lessons on interviewing that you personally have learned along the way from guys like Brian Edwards-Teekert 
Noobs like me truly appreciate many thanks. You're welcome, Kyle. Kyle goes on. For the record, I found information and suggestions for, that Newsom advocates for in the book to be potentially sage advice. I say potentially because I have been working on my 10-word descriptions. Ah, yes. This is, kind of digs into something that Eric Newsom and I didn't actually talk about a lot. What's, you know, advice that he wrote about in his book about how to be a great podcaster. Um, could have structured the interview that way. I could have sat down with Eric Newsom and spent the hour of privileged time that we had together to sort of um, get him to sell his book, right? Uh, Because his book is very focused on giving podcasters and radio producers good advice about where to focus their energies to create better work. And, you know, some days I wish I had (laughs) done that interview with Eric Newsom, but I was focused more on uh, bringing out other elements of uh, what his work uh, meant to me as a radio survivor producer, you know, our show's a specific, specific thing. So what I love about, um, what I love about podcasts or radio interviews is, you know, you as the interviewer get to sort of set the, set the agenda and then you're in, the person you're interviewing gets to, uh, focus on what they want to focus on and it's a, to push and a pull. It's what makes, what makes, uh, recorded interviews so exciting, uh, radio and podcasting, especially. Uh, let's see. Back to Kyle. So he's been uh, okay. So Eric Newsom advocates in his book about uh, coming up with a ten-word description for your podcast to help you focus. Um, Kyle says, "Am I reading too much into their importance?" And also writing bios for potential listeners. Ah, also really great advice that Eric Newsom gets into his book that we didn't talk about in today's interview. Writing bios for your listeners, fictional ones, to focus on who your people are. Uh, interestingly enough. Uh, Paul Reisman-Hill and I, as we've mentioned before on the show, we totally did that in our first meetings together as friends and uh, future producers of Radio Survivor. We totally agreed on who the audience was for Radio Survivor over coffee. We, uh, I might have written down in a notebook, but we never wrote it down the, the same way that Eric Newsom advocates that producers should write it down. Uh, we should have. <laughs> you know, If we had written it down in more detail, spent an extra three hours on it, uh, as opposed to the two hours that we had already spent on that work of uh, imagining our audience, it would have benefited us. But, you know. Uh, so Kyle asks, am I reading too much into their importance and also writing bios for potential listeners? In other words, do you see those exercises paying off in the long run? I mean, you either have content people want or you do not. Having a pithy description won't save a bad show. Or am I way off base? Okay, so Kyle, Kyle goes on to share a few more details that I will leave off. But... Uh, yeah. Is it important? Does it help? Yes, it definitely helps. It never hurts for anybody in any endeavor ever, including podcasting radio, to write down your thoughts, to write them down in as much detail as you have the time to do, to use your brain and your pen or your computer keyboard to organize your thoughts. Um, doing the work of writing down your ideas is always good. It always helps. It always focuses your mind and uh, sort of, you know, it sets the it it sets your thoughts on on a path that otherwise would not be there if it's just um, things you say out loud into a microphone or thoughts you keep to yourself and repeat over and over as you're lying in bed at night trying to sleep. So yes, writing down a 10 word description as Eric Newsom 
advocates for in his book of your podcast before you launch your podcast and then refining that 10-word description so that it's perfect, as good as you can get it, uh, is vital. It's great. It's great advice. And there's no reason not to do it. And I would definitely uh, agree with Eric Newsom that it's important and that I, you know, if if you, you're never, you're never overthinking your project if you work on that. You know, I think that's what Kyle's asking. Like, is it worth it? Yes, it's super worth it. Also, writing down your audience bios, is it worth it? Definitely. It's definitely worth it. It's, um, because again, like, if if podcasting was just personal journaling, then it would be a waste. If podcasting was therapy, right? <laughs> like, or you know, just for you, your self improvement, then why put any time at all into uh, imagining who your audience is? writing them down fictional bios for your audience. But it's not. Podcasting is something that we do because we want to share our work with an audience. And most people that do the work of podcasting want that audience to be huge, right? And if not huge, uh, considerably larger than the group of people that they could easily you know, send an email to or write a Facebook message too. You want strangers, uh, people to like what you're thinking or people to get, you know, to get, to get something out of your talking into a microphone with another person or by yourself, you want an audience. And so because that's important to us as podcasters, then, uh, writing down their bios is, is a really good way to keep them in mind. Is it the only way to do it? No, you don't have to write down fictional bios of your audience in order to keep your audience in mind. Um, I think that it's really, you know, be, Paul and I are, came out of a community radio world when we launched the podcast. And when we sat down to have coffee and got excited about launching the podcast, we were already excited about what, what kind of audience we would be talking to. And so that's always been in our brains. And I think in a lot of for people who are lucky enough to be radio producers before they're podcasters, it's you already have a conception of your audience uh, when you sit down to record interviews at the station that you work at. It's the people that live in the town where your radio station is located. It's actually an amazing superpower of radio that I miss every day. Uh, just, you know, podcasting into a microphone, you know, it in, on the one hand, it's been considered, uh, in the industry at this time, like a weakness, right? You're stuck. You're stuck in whatever town you're in. Your audience can't grow beyond it. And that's why the internet, internet radio podcasting has been so powerful because your, your audience is everywhere. But on the other hand, you lose touch with the, the conception of who those people are in your mind as you're speaking into microphones. You don't sit down to record interviews uh, with other people in a vacuum or just for yourself. You have an intention that you have in your mind, sometimes in the back of your mind, sometimes right in the front. This interview's the purpose of this interview is to is to share something with the audience. Let's say in Radio Survivor's uh, point, the purpose of the interview 
on Radio Survivor today is to share a perspective about how you know community broadcasting, the reasons why we make radio matter, and why you know bringing that those um, you know with a hundred years of making radio and a lot of that history also including the unique contribution of community radio how in looking forward to the next 100 years of radio how how all of those lessons and values and techniques and the history all of it can inform both the present and the future that's one of the reasons why radio survivor does the work so every interview that we begin sort of starts from that and we grow from there um in a lot of ways though what's funny about kyle's question the 10-word description for your show is that um our 10-word description for radio survivor has definitely shifted and changed over the years we've done 200 and something something episodes now and uh you know go back and listen to the first one we didn't know how important history for instance was going to be uh to the show uh jennifer really stepped up her contribution as a producer to the program a couple years ago and really grew radio survivors uh focus on like in an academic way because there's a lot of people doing really interesting and important work in in colleges and universities studying radio and there's a whole new like you know realm of sound studies that i don't think paul and i had a clue <laughs> when we started five years ago and now we're you know sometimes radio survivor is a sound studies podcast as much as it's anything else and that's been really exciting it's opened up a whole new world of potential guests for us you know uh, ideas for shows and that's the point being that um our 10 word description would change over time and that's cool like uh so kyle thank you so much for your question i hope that helps a little bit and thank you for letting me uh use your questions and your words on the podcast today i hope you're well uh when you i let the listeners know that when you asked me your question it was back before uh the pandemic shut down covid times and so i i answer your question today in uh, September of 2020, and I hope that it finds you well as compared to where you were at when you asked me your question, this, your follow-up question in March. Uh, oh, no wonder, because that was the beginning of the COVID shutdown quarantine time. So I, I failed to get back to you right away because I could not organize my thoughts. You know, some might wonder if I still am having trouble organizing my thoughts. Uh, speaking of which, I hope you guys are well here on the Radio Survivor audience. Uh, this is a rare thing for me to have done, to have monologued into the podcast. Um, you know, we don't have an opportunity on the show very much to reflect on uh, on the strain of pandemic shutdown times you know sometimes we've marveled at how they're changing the radio landscape or the podcasting landscape but i just hope that everybody in our radio survivor audience um is also able to get everything that they need the food the housing paying your bills uh you know 
as well as your health and your family's health. I hope everyone is doing good. It's on my mind all the time how how the how the people of the world are are faring in these difficult times, you know. And if you know, and like what you know, I mean Rate a Survivor Rate a Survivor is not a show about public health. <laughs> it's not a show about um the housing crisis or, you know, food deserts and food security. So we don't often talk about these social justice issues in any way. But like, in a way, in a world in which talking into microphones to communities is a part of that work, I do think that um, uh, there's there's something to be said for figuring out how Radio Survivor in the year 2021 can help with this project. Um and so it's on my mind. I guess that's what I'm saying into the microphone. It's on my mind. And if 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 you have any answers for me or if it's on your mind, uh, you can always email us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Well, thank you so much for this, uh, for this privilege of talking into a microphone into your ears. Thank you for listening. I hope you're well. Um, you know, if you haven't already, check out the the the, the, the episodes of Radio Survivor that we've put out into the world. Uh, recently have been really incredible um episode number 260 was titled radio history on the northern border of mexico is a really wonderful opportunity to speak with an academic who's bilingual and studied the border radio in the mexican border of the united states in a way that was uh, really exciting and unique because a lot of um a lot of the work apparently that had been done on border radio you know our our previous episode of border radio uh, was a few episodes back. I don't. Let's see. So I'm I'm current. I'm talking to you now about episode number two hundred and sixty. With our guest was our guest was Sonia Robles, and Sonia Robles uh, brought a really unique perspective compared to uh, the previous time where we talked about Border Radio on episode number two hundred and twelve, where we spoke with Dr. Kevin Curran of Arizona State University, who also you know shared a lot, but like. Uh, with Kevin Curran's interview, we were focusing on um, broadcasters from the 20th century who were blasting into North America, into the like into the United States market from over the border. You know, they were in Mexico, but their audience was in the United States. When Sonia Robles came on, we also had an opportunity to talk about Mexican audiences, which was a uh, so exciting. So we had both of those episodes, episode number 260 and episode number 212, learning about border radio. You know, uh, recently Paul produced an episode of Radio Survivor with Carl Malamud. Carl Malamud is credited, although very humbly he will not, uh, you know, like he just says he hacked it together. But, you know, as far as the, the history goes, Carl Malamud is credited with the f- first podcast, the first time shifted internet radio program. Uh, starting in 1993, we had an opportunity to interview Carl about both that history and also a, a little bit more of the story. You know, like if you read the first two paragraphs of any sort of uh, article or history of the Geek of the Week, the Time Shifter radio show, you'll get a certain set of facts. Radio Survivor was able to talk to Carl to dig into a little bit more of uh, some Radio Survivor uh, things that we care about more on Radio Survivor, like Carl's uh, college radio past. And uh, really proud of that episode. That was episode number 255. And those are just some of the recent 
uh, podcast episodes that I'd love to share with you. In case you missed them, you can always go back and listen to them again here at Radio Survivor, online at radiosurvivor.com or anywhere where you get your podcasts. If you're able to dig back in the archives in your particular podcast catcher, it all depends on how these apps are programmed. So uh, it might be easier to go to radiosurvivor.com Click on the podcast and radio show tab and then uh, scroll, scroll your way through the archives until you find old episodes that you love because we have produced more uh, over 260 episodes of the show and uh, some of them are pretty good in my opinion. Well, uh, on behalf of Paul Reese Mandel and Jennifer Waits and Matthew Lassar, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.